Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Well, we are, as Alex explained last week, um, we're jumping around a little bit in Ephesians because the first three chapters are all about doctrine. And then chapters four through six are all about how that doctrine informs how we treat one another. And specifically how uh, Ephesians, we'll talk about this a little bit more, is about actually um, us being united together as a church. That's what the message of uh, Ephesians is. We'll we'll get into that just a little bit. Um, But... So we jumped ahead, we were in chapter 1, we jumped ahead to chapter 4, and Pastor Al last week uh, covered chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to do 4 through 6 this morning. So it's going to be in continuation of that, and then next week is Palm Sunday, and the week after that is Easter, so we're going to take a break from Ephesians, and I'm going to do a Palm Sunday teaching next week, and then an Easter teaching, obviously, so... We'll break from Ephesians and then probably finish out this section in chapter 4 and then dig into one, uh, chapter 1 again. So this is all about unity. And the left to our own devices, humans always find a way to divide ourselves. I and mean, that's just part of our natural bend. We have this inward lean towards animosity. And you can... It's, it's, you know that it's true because when you haven't seen someone for a while, even someone that you are close with and friends with or someone in your family, when you haven't seen them, seen them for a while, you automatically begin to um, have, assume the worst and have these strange ideas that rise to the surface. Like even the last interaction you had was fantastic and then it's like um, you start assuming, well, they're, maybe they're just too busy for me. And then it starts this crazy stream of ideas about this person and assumptions that probably aren't even true. I bet they're upset with me. I bet they're mad about something I did. I mean, let me think back to the last time we were together. I bet they took that wrong. Yep, now they're probably stewing in it. And now this resentment begins to build. And then kind of as a defense mechanism, we typically go, um, and this happens in all of our lives, every single one of us, we have this defense mechanism that now I have this resentment building and, and, and now I'm starting to think of all the ways that person used to just annoy and frustrate me, the little tendencies, the little habits, and you're building a case against them in your own mind. And then you run across each other and you, you have coffee together and you just find out they're busy. And you leave and you're thinking, man, they are amazing. I love them. I can't even believe I ever thought any, like they're just wonderful people. Why would I ever even think? Why does that happen to us? Why do we do that? Where does it come from? Or maybe it's a new employee at work. And their very first day, the night before his first day, he had to put the family dog down that they've had for like 15 years. So he comes into work, understandably so, he's a little bit sad and a little bit quiet. And people begin to interpret that. 
Because humans often, we, we have this bend towards assuming the worst in one another. And so he begins, you, we begin to interpret that with our coworkers like, I bet he thinks this job's beneath him. He probably thinks he's too good for us. Yeah, he's, he's the aloof type. He's not going to, he's, thinks he's better than us, you know. That happens all the time. And where does that come from? I had a friend who was a, a pilot. He was a private pilot. And he would, he would take people around, fly people around. He was paid to do that. And um, one, of the, one time he found on his, his list of people he was going to be flying around is Bill Clinton. Now, if you were a Christian when Clinton was president, you know you're supposed to hate him. Because that's what Christians do. We hate people. So... You're supposed to hate Bill Clinton. Like you're, you're, you know, you don't, you know, he's whatever, immoral and bad policy and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, he's, he's not on my side. And, and we just, so this guy, my friend was saying, I, I wanted to hate him so bad. And then I met him. And he asked about my family. He asked about my kids. He asked about my, my son's Little League team. And he looked at the pictures and he talked with me. And, you know, everybody else I fly, they're kind of, they are kind of, they got a ton of money. They're kind of, they don't want to, they don't want to see me. They don't want to interact with me. They don't tip. He sat with me for a lot of the flight just talking, shooting the breeze. I wanted to hate him, but he's actually a nice guy. I've probably made mistakes too. There's something about us why do we do this? This natural bend towards animosity. We nurse grudges. We assume the worst in one another. But with the church, it's supposed to be different. We're supposed to be an anti-divisive community. And this is what Ephesians is actually all about. Why is it harder within the church? Because it is. It's more difficult. There's a reason why it's more difficult to guard unity in the church and it's because we have an enemy who's determined to divide us. We have an enemy who is feeding this natural bend toward animosity and whispering things in our ears when we're driving home from church. Do you see the way that person looked at you today? Yeah, they think they're better than you. Or they were glaring at you. Or... Boy, so-and-so really ignored you this morning. What's their problem? Or another Sunday leaving church and everybody ignores me. I'm just sitting there waiting for them to talk to me and nobody does. I'm not going to go talk to them. They better come talk to me. But another Sunday, nobody. What about that? What are you going to do with that? Everyone's ignoring you. You should probably just stop going there. We have this enemy that is inflaming. He's planting these types of thoughts. Biblically, we can prove this. He's accusing one another all the time in our minds. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 says, put on the whole armor of God. This is our enemy, because our enemy is not one another. Our enemy is not other people. It's never people. It's always spiritual. Listen, listen to this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. One of his schemes is divisiveness. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. A Christian can never make another person the enemy. We just can't. 
The Spirit doesn't allow for that. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that's our true enemy. The spiritual dark forces in the heavenly places that are energizing division. So we have to be familiar with Satan's schemes so that we're not outwitted by him. This is what Paul told the, told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2. You, you need to be familiar with what he's doing so he doesn't outwit you. So let's think about what Satan's been up to since the beginning, since even, be, um, I think, before creation, at least creation of the earth. What has Satan been about since the very beginning? Let's look at this. This is in your notes. Satan's game plan. First, and I'm doing fill in the blanks this week just because, um, I don't know, it helps me feel less insecure for some reason. I don't know why. You guys have something to do so you're not looking at me the whole time. All right, Satan's game plan. It divide angels from God. That was agenda number one for Satan. He wanted to divide angels from God. He, and he probably was planting seeds of suspicion. We probably saw this mirrored in the Garden of Eden when he was planting seeds of suspicion with Eve against God. Did he really tell you to do that? Is he really like that big of a killjoy? He, he probably was saying things like, you know, I know we're created because angels are created, but why does he have all the power? Why does he get to all the glory? Seeds of division trying to divide angels from God. And then, because of that, dividing angels from each other. A third of the angels were cast out of heaven. He split. It would, the first church split was in heaven. That's where it happened. Satan was already sowing discord. He was already creating a faction whoa, of, the, of angels in the church. And we see this in Revelation 12, 7 through 9. I'll read it if you don't have the bulletin, but it's in there. Now war arose in heaven. Imagine that. I mean, just think about that. You could think about that for about a week. War arose in heaven. That won't happen ever again, by the way. But there was a time when God allowed that to happen in his sovereign authority. There was a war in heaven. Michael, you're familiar with his name as an angel in the, in the Bible. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Great. <laughs> Satan and his angels, now demons, start a fight in heaven, and they were cast out of heaven and sent to earth. And now we get to deal with them. And the way that Satan and his, it is demons do warfare is not like weird. I've told that strange story before where someone was in a Bible study and they told the pastor, I just feel, I feel like I see Satan chewing on that person's shoulder right now. And the pastor's like, why, of all the places in the world that Satan can be, he's not omnipresent, why would he be in this little Bible study gnawing on a person's shoulder? 
That doesn't make sense. We have these, all these weird ideas of what Satan is and what he does. The scheme of Satan is primarily division. So they've been launched out of heaven and now they're on earth. Do you think the game plan's changed? I mean, it kind of worked. Right? I've got my own army of angels now. What are we going to do? Here's what they're doing. The next one, divide humans from God. That's the number one agenda for Satan right now and for his demons. All the dark forces, all the pretend power um, authority structures of the spiritual world who are just mimicking God. They're trying to turn us and keep us from God, divide humans from God. So they're going to slander God to humans. They're going to build a caricature of God. They're going to make it seem silly, like a vision of an old man with a long white beard sitting in a really bright room, and that's your vision of God. <laughs> or he's a killjoy, or he's grumpy. He's a dad, but he's kind of an angry, abusive dad. Or however you view, however you view him. That's not true. That's Satan's behind it. And then the last thing, of course, divide humans from each other. And this is Genesis 3 through the end of Revelation, the end of the Bible. This is a close second to his primary agenda of dividing people from God, is dividing people from one another. And notice it's the exact mirror opposite of what Jesus instructs us. That our primary responsibilities are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Paul actually says to think others of others as more important than you, to give them higher honor than you give yourself. Now this is especially within the church. You know, Satan's going to use anything he can to divide us. He'll energize frustration, he'll plant suspicious thoughts, he'll stir up resentment, he'll tempt us to assume the worst in one another. And the book of Ephesians is all about God uniting everything together in Christ on a cosmological level. Jesus is working right now, God is working right now to bring everything, all of creation together in Christ. That's where Jesus said once, that if you guys don't worship, the, the rocks will. They'll cry out. They'll praise me. Because the creation is waiting for us to get it straight. So he's uniting Everyone together in Christ. And then the second sub-point of Ephesians, which is a really big point, is that God is uniting the church together in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, in another place that we'll, we'll study at another time, that he broke down the walls of hostility between people. That's what the church is. So there's no room for division in the church, even though it's a constant temptation for all of us. Galatians 3, 27, 28, Paul says it this way, because there was a lot of infighting that they were experiencing. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying you are all united. There is no longer any human thing that divides you. Your family, your brothers and sisters. And Jesus prays in John 17, 23 that the church may become perfectly one. 
So we, we have an opportunity to, uh, to play along and to partner with Jesus in the answer of his prayer. The way that we treat one another is going to either hinder Jesus' prayer from becoming reality or help it to become reality. It's going to become reality either way. But we can play a role now in moving towards one another. Christ is always at work uniting us together in him. If there's a faction in the church, Satan is behind it. If there's exclusiveness in the church, Satan is behind it. If there's anything keeping us from loving one another, Satan is behind it. It's just that simple. This Wednesday night, um, we have a a team now called our Shepherd Team, uh, a group of friends um, just that I love very much, ask them to be a part of this team that's going to oversee the spiritual health and direction of Southside. And part of their responsibility, I mean, part of their assignment this last meeting was to write out all the, the, a list of all the names of people that we judge. Well, not names, I'm sorry, all the types of people. We did not write any names. You're like, that's good to know, our shepherding team is like, who, who are the people that we're going to be kicking out of here? Um, good grief. So, <laughs> Jay, we got to talk afterwards. Uh, so we're like, all, all, the, all the types of people, like just the general types of people that we tend to judge. You know, for Christians, I mean, we, we have probably a, as long a list as anybody um, in the world, which is really sad, but it's, it's true. So bring this list of people that we tend to judge. Bring this list of people that you tend to think that you're, you're probably better than in some way, um, or you deserve more than them in some way. And we brought it, and then we, and then we got in these small groups, and we asked the question, so what is this list as you're looking at it? What is it? What are some observations? Are you surprised it's that big? How do you feel looking at that list? Is this Christ, is pleasing Christ? Like, what's... What are you sensing? And then the second question was, how is this list going to inhibit you from shepherding people? Which is what our responsibility is, and that is the only thing we are supposed to be about. So last week, Pastor Al taught again about our role and our role in eagerly guarding and maintaining unity in the church. What are we supposed to do? That's Ephesians 4, 1 through, th- 1 through 3. This morning, our focus turns to the next two verses, verses 4 through 6, because since verses 1 through 3 is what are we supposed to do, verses 4 through 6 is what has God already done? And so I'm going to read Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul gives us seven descriptive phrases that lay the foundation for our unity. These are the things that he has already Done. This is already reality at the spiritual level, and our job is to, to work it out in the real life, like person-to-person level. At spiritually, this is already true. He's already accomplished it. He's already done it. And our job is to begin to act as though he's already 
done it. And every phase, every phrase teaches us something. And every phrase is, is worth reflecting on. It gives us something a little bit different that God is emphasizing in our unity. But I just want to focus on the first one because of time today. And that is one body. And Paul's talking about the church. So this is specifically talking about people inside of the church, part of God's spiritual family. And God has made us one. And what God has made one, let no man separate. Because if you introduce divisiveness into the church, it's like introduce, introducing divisiveness into a marriage, which is another thing that God has made one. In fact, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 lists seven things that are an abomination to God. An abomination means extreme disgust and hatred. And the seventh thing mentioned in Proverbs 6 is one who sows discord among brothers. And if that's something that makes God dry heave with disgust, we should probably be alert to it. So if God has made us one body, and we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, what does it mean to sow discord among one another? Well, discord is sown with the tongue. It's with, it's, it's with what, you, what you say. And James 3, 5, and 6 says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's funny because as a pastor, you're, you're supposed to see things in other people that you can lovingly correct and bring people back on path. Um, and for me, it's really easy to do because as I prepare a teaching, and this Ephesians has been incredibly convicting and difficult for me, not because it has some hard things theologically to, to address, but because God is looking into my own heart. And it's just the timing of all this is, is something that only God could accomplish because I feel like he's just every week challenging and pummeling me. So it's easy for me to address things in other people because I genuinely believe that there's nobody in this room that's a worse sinner than I am. Because when you have 22 years of every week preparing a teaching in Scripture in some form, whether it's seminary um, class where you're writing a paper or a sermon or a youth group talk or whatever it has been in the last 22 years, every week I'm confronted in a new way by a new passage um, my own sin is confronted, and that's brutal. So I guess what I'm saying is we're in this together. We're on a shared journey. There's nobody in here who has it more figured out than anybody else. But we need to be watchful for one another. Because one of the primary things that a family is supposed to do is say, hey, you're going off track a little bit. You need to get back on the path. And you need to do that for me. And I need to do that for you. And you need to do that for each other. And with that in mind, if it's true that God has united us together as one body, if it's true that God is disgusted when we sow discord among the body, if it's true that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, perhaps a place to start would be to control the tongue. And I want to give you three things that have been helping me. And I have a long way to go in this. Um, 
I, I'm just learning how, how much of a fire my tongue can start. It is a world of unrighteousness. That is very true. That's very well said. The first thing that I'm learning is, uh, the first thing that's been helping me is a long, slow read of James 3. So you, we've talked about my quiet time and what I do and what that looks like, um, a slow stroll through a gospel and the same psalm every morning, praying it, thinking about it, reflecting on it. But I also have a handful of go-to chapters in the Bible that are marked in my Bible. And I often go back to the well for more nourishment, more refreshment, more conviction. And James 3 is one of those. It talks about the danger of the tongue. And if it basically, I mean, it says, if you can control the tongue, you can be perfect. You will never completely control your tongue. You can't. It's impossible. I've been trying. It is impossible, but you can get better. So James 3, let that do some work for you. If this is an area where you struggle, it is. Mark James 3 in your Bible as a, as a passage that you can go back to frequently and be challenged afresh. Uh, the second thing is practice silence when I feel the urge to say something divisive and, in that si- divisive, and in that silence recite the Jesus prayer in my heart. Silence is really hard. It's the hardest spiritual, di- well actually fasting is the hardest spiritual discipline for me, but silence is right up there because silence is a type of fasting. Um, you're abstaining from speaking. And if you want to learn how much this is what has been true for me. You control people with your tongue. Exercise silence. You would be shocked at the power you leverage with your words. It's incredible. And so practicing silence for me when I feel like I'm going to say something divisive, just recognizing it in my heart, and really not saying anything. Instead, in my heart, saying um, the the classical form of the Jesus prayer, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when you do that, something really weird happens that he begins to show you these nuanced little ways that you actually are a sinner. It begins to humble you. And you can no longer think you're better than somebody. Because that prayer is inviting you to see, you know what? You're in the family because a king hung on a cross. And that's the only reason. And it beats the cynicism out of you too. Because at first I was saying I'd practice science and I wouldn't actually because here's what I'd say. Not going to say anything. Not going to do it. Nope. And I was saying something. I was communicating something by saying that. And Jesus is just kind of like, hold your tongue, son. Keep your mouth shut and ask for mercy because that's what you need right now. Number three is speak for, the, speak for the people not in the room. What if you knew that, that when you're not in the room, you have an advocate in the room? And this is something that I've learned from our spiritual directors. Um, he vies for this and he challenges uh, people to do this. And it's really, I've never heard it before, but it's something I've been working on and it's really, really hard. 
Speak up for the people not there. So what if in any room you knew you had an advocate, that if your name came up, someone in that room would make sure that everyone's assuming the best in you? Like, What if that was true for you? That any room in Wayne County, anywhere around here, that as long as someone from your spiritual family, which is what we are, was in that room, no one was allowed slandering you. That's the potential of working towards unity. That's the potential of partnering with the Spirit of God to guard our own hearts, to guard the unity of what Christ is doing and building in his church, to learn to love one another. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And our job is to partner with Jesus and what he's already accomplished at a spiritual level. Not easy. There's nobody in this room worse than I am. Nobody, I promise you. But if we could become that type of unified church, we would actually have something to show the world that is different than what they're seeing from anywhere else. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.